Today on the We Invested podcast, we have Patrick Grimes, founder of Invest on Main Street. Patrick, how are you doing today? Wesley, I'm great. I'm excited to be on here with you. Looking forward to our chat. Absolutely, absolutely. And before we get started, would you mind letting the people know where they can find you on the internet, whether it's social media or your website? Yeah. So Patrick Grimes with Invest on Main and then Street. Invest on and Main and then Street, all spelled out, dot com. I also have a book out, Persistence, Pivots, and Game Changers, uh, Amazon number one bestseller. So that one's out there as well. Happy to chat with anybody about their investment goals and see if I can get them pointed in the right direction. Absolutely. So let's just start from the top and talk a little bit about, you know, where you're from and where you grew up. Well, that's an interesting one. <laughs> my, I uh, was a military brat, so I was actually born in Italy. My father was stationed out there in the Air Force. Um, didn't spend too long there, but did bounce around a bit. We lived in Florida, uh, south, south of Florida, Keys, Port Charlotte for a while, and uh, Key Marathon. Then Northern California, that's where I say I'm from. I was actually with the high school at Yosemite High School. So up in the mountains, up in the pine trees. And that's kind of where I identify with is where I'm from. Since then, you know, lived in Northern Southern California and Hawaii. And right now we're in Orange County, Southern California. Absolutely. So, I mean, it sounds like you've been all over Italy, Florida, Northern California, Southern California. How would you say, you know, moving around, the country and, and even the world impacted your outlook on life and success? Well, my fam my, my mother's dad was an evangelical minister. And so my mom was raised traveling the world while he did a uh, large stadium style um, crusades. <laughs> and so I was kind of instilled at a young age with the traveling bug. And I think it was pretty fortunate that, my wife kind of me even had my my sister and my brother doing years abroad on exchanges and stuff. So we kind of had that young. I at this point I've been to a little over, I think, eighth of the world's countries. I've done two gap years traveling through Europe, uh, Middle East and Asia and Southeast Asia. Some incredible times traveling through some wild, dangerous, exciting, and very unique cultures um, during all that. And, pretty fortunate to have those experiences. Absolutely. And what would you say is, is like a lesson that stuck out to you or that stuck with you from those experiences that you've had while traveling? There are beautiful things in all the cultures I went to all around the world. And I think one of the biggest eye openers that I, I traveled into Jerusalem and, you know, I got to stay the night in the church of Holy Sepulchre and learn about the, holiest place in Christianity, a stone's throw from the Western Wall, the holiest place in Judaism, with the Dome of the Rock, um, the third holiest place in Islam, all right there within a large frisbee's throw. And then the, the, the struggles there, I thought that was just so fascinating. And then to speak with each of the faiths and learn about each of the faiths. I actually flew to Cairo during Ramadan, and I wow. experienced, yeah, during the Morsi overthrow, and I spent 35 days in Egypt, uh, in Cairo, traveling down the Nile, learning and learned a lot about the Islamic faith. And there are some very beautiful things about it. And it was so foreign to me. And I heard such very little being from America. And, you know, you hear about terrorism. And, but, you know, being there during Ramadan, they feast as a community every single day at sundown as a beautiful, 
beautiful sharing and cultural event every single day. We simply don't have anything like that here. So there's beautiful things about those cultures. The Buddhist temples in China and Southeastern Asia were, were very interesting. I, I don't know how they do it. <laughs> I've done a little bit ADD, but I spent a couple of weeks trying to calm myself in some Buddhist temples. And, uh, and those, guys, those guys can just sit there and meditate <laughs> for, for all day. <laughs> it's like, how is that possible? <laughs> so, but it was a lot of cool stuff. And I, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a backpacker, a mountaineer. I, I did the Everest Base Camp. Uh, whitewater after the Grand Canyon, hiked Mount Fuji, climbed Shasta. Um, so I do a lot of adventure sports along the way. Absolutely. No, that's incredible. Um, I mean, and just getting the chance to see these different cultures and experience these different lifestyles and to just really get a chance to experience that sense of community that you talked about where they share a feast every night. I mean, and I think that says a lot about um you know, the mindset that you need when you're creating and building a company, being able to uh, foster that community and that kind of family feel. But I mean, just speaking of the company, I want to transition and talk a little bit more about this brand and, and this business that you've built today. And I want to ask, what is Invest on Main Street? Well, and going back to my, I actually came from a high tech background. And so I had built an automation robotics um, business and consulting and did great with that. But that was a wild ride in the high tech business. So I was always kind of dabbling in alternative investments and I was dabbling in real estate. I lost everything in the 2008-9 downturn because I was in some more risky pre-development. Dove back into the high tech, did a master's in engineering and business, started making income again and got back into real estate, but this time more recession resilient markets, buying for cash flow being the tortoise, not the hare, looking longer term. And when I started doing more single family and scaling that, I realized I needed to trade up to larger assets. And then I did larger apartment buildings. And Invest on Main Street morphed out of the growth of needing to go from a high-tech guy that's moonlighting single family residences, buying distress, renovating, holding, to a private equity firm that into large commercial assets. I went from three bedroom, two bath to my first multifamily is 86 units. <laughs> so it takes a whole different ball game with different people, different levels of sophistication and other people's money, uh, passive investors, right? I couldn't fund it all on my own at that time. And so invest on Main Street is our, our, our mission is to find ways for passive investors to diversify out of what are conventional passive investments and what you put in your 401k and IRA or the stock market, especially in times like these, when those are all getting rocked by inflation, uh, the recession, we want to be in recession resilient assets where we actually make a higher return with inflation. We want to be in, if we're using debt, long-term fixed debt, so we're not getting hit by interest rates and tax advantaged ones where our cash flow isn't hit by tax. And so we've been in now, a little over 500 million in real estate. And we've got over invested over in over hundred natural gas and oil wells and diversified energy funds. And we have some opportunistic acquisitions that a new fund coming out, we're launching right now, which picks up a lot of those 2009 and 10 type opportunities where I lost everything in the last round this time, I want to be cash heavy and ready to pounce. <laughs> and so that's what we're doing. 
Absolutely. So what was that initial spark? You know, you mentioned that you have a background in, in tech and you, you know, uh, made some automations. But what was that initial spark or that initial interest that got you even looking at real estate or even starting to think about um, becoming a part of the real estate industry? So the very side, I was, I've always been a bit of a, I'm an engineer by heart. I was taking apart VCRs, building Legos as a kid. Um, and when I, I went immediately into engineering school, bachelor's in engineering, the first company I worked for was a machine design firm. I was doing robotics for medical device assembly. We did stuff with Tesla, did some stuff with Apple, really cool stuff. And uh, I was loving it. I was ready to do that forever owner of the company, one of the co-founders said, look, uh, my only regret was not building this company. It was not putting more into real estate sooner. And I was like, wow. <laughs> he said, you know, you're, but well, this high tech stuff is cognitively rewarding. Make sure you're investing that in something that will provide long-term wealth and uh, for your family. So you're not working until you die. And so I was like, interesting. So I learned, read the, read the purple book from Robert Kiyosaki and invested, started investing in real estate. Lost it all because that was before 2006 and I was too ambitious. <laughs> so, you know, I didn't become the tortoise until later. Um, but, uh, but that's what sparked it. Absolutely. No, and I think it's a great, um, you know, theme to that story is that even though you experienced the 2008 housing crash, you had the resilience to um, get back into real estate investing, to, to start back up and to revamp your plans and to uh, improve your plans. So, I mean, what lessons did you learn from that crash? Because I think that brings a lot of value to your clients and your customers to be able to say, okay, I've, I've experienced a downturn before I've gone through that. Now I've, I've seen it and I know how to handle it. So what are some lessons that you've learned from, from that, um, that 2008 crash? Well, so I, I learned the difference between speculating and investing. And when I was doing pre-development, there was no asset there, even ready to build. We had to create something before we could even build. And we had to finish the build project before we could sell or rent. So we weren't, we weren't buying something that had intrinsic value on day one. We weren't buying something that uh, could be rented out on day one. It was a bridge. It took some, a while. And I took on way too much debt. I was highly leveraged. I mean, this was back in six and seven. Like, the, you know, the market was never going to go down back then. It was, it was very interesting. And uh, I didn't know. Uh, that what it meant to personally guarantee a loan. I didn't know that what cross-collateralization was. And that's when when the government comes after your assets because you default on a loan, right? And they don't just let you take the property. <laughs> they won't just they don't they don't want the property. They want your assets to cover their losses. And uh so yeah, when when the properties uh didn't get completed, people started going bankrupt. Uh, I was able to avoid BK. I paid out of pocket quite a bit. I negotiated debt forgiveness with the lender. And I also learned that it doesn't matter if you have a good relationship with your lender <laughs> because they're going to sell your note. They're going to sell your loan. That happened multiple times. Ultimately, it gets to these guys that know they're picking up something for pennies on the dollar and they're a little predatory, right? So they're, they're wanting to take as much as they can. I had to negotiate debt forgiveness. 
dropped it through foreclosure, learned all about foreclosure. <laughs> and, uh, and then what's very interesting is, um, which was the surprise to me, actually, the attorney I hired didn't ever explain this to me, but uh, because the bank took debt forgiveness, air quotes, right, and told, and, you know, told the government it was forgiven debt, the government turned around and 1099 me for the forgiven debt. So I actually had to pay taxes on income equivalent to the forgiven debt probably should have gotten BK because the people that did that didn't. So now I was not only paying for years and then negotiating and paying attorneys to try and do the right thing, but then I was always paying taxes on the back half. It took me quite a few years to recover from that. Um, so I learned a lot of lessons. I learned uh, through all of that. So buying for cash flow, buying something that you can quickly turn around to being income generated using no leverage or low leverage, uh, while it's destabilized or you, you can't cover your, your uh, expenses and your debt service, fixing your debt over time. I had variable interest rates, had second, seconds on the debt too. And so all of our assets now are either long-term fixed interest. So we're, 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 we're sitting really well right now, even with interest rates going up. Or in a couple, we have variable interest rates, but we bought a rate cap, right? So that we can still pay our interest. We also do things like look at the markets we're in. We, we invest in recession resilient markets. We're looking at markets where we can see where the vacancies fell in past recessions and we're plugging in what happens if we have vacancies like that again, right? And can we still pay our bills? Can we still pay our bills if our interest rates go up or vacancies go down and we have a burn building or a hurricane hit? So in order to do something like that, Good, good insurance and you have to have a lot of reserves. So we put up low enough leverage so we're pretty much battle tested as best we can. Uh, use a lot of data to suggest that we can ride out other recessions in even combination with a recession with a natural disaster. Um, so those are probably that there's some of them I can keep going. <laughs> Absolutely. No, I mean, it's all great and valuable information. Um, you know, something interesting that I think you mentioned was you know you look you look for different markets that are recession proof or you look for different markets that are re recession resilient mm -hmm. so it's always been an interesting concept to me of people and funds investing outside of where they live so you're in orange county right now where real estate prices are extremely high and they've always been high um so i mean what are your thoughts and feelings about invested in markets outside of where you live and how do you go about vetting these different properties and, and these different um deals well uh so i used to do automation i used to do automation in the plant that was toyota that became tesla and then i went in there and did robotics for tesla uh the plant in fremont california what did elon do uh, he moved to a more landlord friendly <laughs> state a state that's um, tax advantaged, a state that has legislative friendly laws, which just so happens to also apply to real estate. We can evict people there when they're not paying. They don't have rent control. So if we buy a rundown property, we can fix it up, make it a cleaner, safer, and improved living experience. And in Texas, it wasn't as hit so bad in past recessions. If you look at Houston, in fact, the in 2006, 7, and 8, it kind of leveled off before it started going up again. 
places like Phoenix and LA, it took 12 to 14 years. So if you look at it from a, an analytics perspective, uh, it makes a lot of sense to invest, set up shop. If you're going to be truly a business about it, set up shop where it makes more sense for that business. And that's not in Southern California. And so how do you analyze those deals? Well, it's a lot of work. <laughs> you got to, you got to, we flew around a lot and we partnered up. In fact, I, you know, the, the first couple of deals we closed on, we partnered up with individuals who were from those areas. Uh, we learned a lot firsthand. Um, the good news about apartment buildings is you can see the profit loss statements for the last year. And you can do due diligence to see what the actual income was. You can do inspections. We walk all the units to make sure that it's, it's all there. We're going to do that same kind of due diligence if it's here in California. I would rather pay the flight, have a better stabilized income asset and a more landlord-friendly place with that's more recession resilient. I'd rather fly to Texas and buy it there instead of buying one here uh, for all those reasons. So for potential investors or potential clients that may be hearing about the um, rising interest rates, I think interest rates have been rising for like close to 12 months now, maybe even longer. But how do you um, provide comfort to them in, in seeing or how do you provide comfort to them in, during this current time of like interest rate hikes and interest rate increases? Well, um, back when I was born in, you know, in the 1980s, early 1980s, <laughs> the interest rates were in the high teens. Uh, you know what happened back then? People were doing real estate deals and they're making a lot of money. Um, the interest rate doesn't mean a bad, a deal's bad. And, and in the grand scheme of things, interest rates are still low. Uh, what happened is real estate was just on a tear and things were just climbing. You didn't have to be a good operator, a good owner. You didn't have to have good, safe, long-term debt. You could get short-term hard money or bridge loans, buy these large assets and hope that the interest rates don't rise and make big returns. Well, for the most part, those kind of short-term flippers, those operators that weren't really looking long-term, they're hurting right now. Uh, there's some challenges they're having. Um, I often tell people if you're going to invest with somebody, make sure that they've invested through a downturn and see how they see what they're doing <laughs> based on that experience moving forward because we're heading for another one. Um, so the comfort is the in my deals, and maybe maybe they're cash flowing a little less than we were the, last year or the year before. Uh, mostly that's not because of the interest rates, maybe because insurance has gone up. Delinquencies are a little high because people during COVID that were getting the supplemental checks, well, those went away, but some of those people are still not paying. So we can do some turnover there. But, um, but the reality is if you structure the foundation of a deal correctly, you can make a in real estate investment work in any, any interest rate. Um, the only difference is the expectations of the investors on the returns. Interest rates will drive down pricing and sometimes drive down cash flow. And uh, how long it takes for the appetite for those investors to come around. If it's been a long-term operator, then it's kind of business as usual to some extent. We're still finding, actually, we're actually finding better assets now. Ones that were on the market for 
10 million more last year. Those are incredible deals. And we're getting, we're assuming loans that are at 3% because we're buying loans that were put in place prior to the downturn. It was the last closing we had, 3.5%. And um, we're putting a lot of capital down. We put like 50% down on that. It was like 55% loan to value. So incredible, like very low leveraged, very low interest rate, got it at a crazy discount. And um, those are still really great deals. Just got to find very strong uh, uh, companies to invest with. Absolutely. How do you evaluate a real estate deal? What are you looking for? What are the specific um, indicators that you need in order to feel comfortable to go or to move forward with the deal? Is there a specific cash flow that you're looking for? Is there a specific return on investment, cash on cash value? Like, like what do you specifically uh, need to see? Well, we're, we buy opportunistic acquisitions uh, in landlord-friendly locations um, where they're legislative-friendly and tax-advantaged, where people are moving to, right? So you got kind of the first, you have the market. You have to have the right market. Uh, if you're in housing, then population growth is what you want. You can't have population without job growth, but it tends to be that if it's uh, a friendly place, low cost of living, and it's legislative friendly, it's employment friendly, then, then the, the jobs and the people grow together. As long as you're in a place like that, you're going to have more demand um, for housing. So that's what we look for that. In the specific markets, we're looking for, just like I mentioned, we look at the data to see, well, in past recessions, where did, where did we see what were the dynamics that happened? What were the was what was the vacancies? You know, all uh, that we need to. So then we'll structure. Well, this is what down payment we need to have to try and get um, be able to pay our bills when we stress test it down to those market conditions. In some markets, we can't we can't make deals stand up. Very difficult to to make a deal stand up in California, New York, with a twenty or twenty five percent vacancy because you don't get very much cash flow for your pricing. It's very overpriced for very little cash flow. But you can in some markets like the southeastern states that we're working in, some in the Midwest as well. So you've got to make sure that you still have a deal after you stress tested it, put low enough debt and um, fix that interest rate. Um, then we're looking for the opportunistic acquisitions. We're looking for those needle in a haystacks going through, in fact, an opportunistic acquisition fund that we're launching right now, it's we're going through about a thousand different leads. We get about 200 viable ones sifting through a month. And we pull maybe one or two of those uh, as our plan over the coming year, one or two of those a quarter. And so we're, we're flying all over. We have people flying all over. We have half a dozen people just constantly doing nothing but underwrite these deals. And we're looking for traits, motivated sellers, but at a large scale. Sometimes not a distressed building, um, but a distressed owner. Because right now what we're seeing is, well, people went into COVID, they didn't have a lot of reserves, but residents stopped paying and they're strapped for cash. They got to exit. Or maybe they didn't get a rate cap and they're on a bridge loan and now the interest rate costs have exceeded all their cash flow. They're in trouble. Maybe they inherited the property. Or like in our last Atlanta investment, it was a combination of that. They had a 20% bad or 19% bad debt plus 
The guy didn't have reserves, so we couldn't renovate the units, and he had a building burned down. So you look for like a combination of these stress factors, and it's off market. We don't buy, we don't put bids in when there's 20 or 40 other people buying these beautiful institutional assets. I like to buy things where we can get in, do a bunch of work, you know, and and create value, improve the lives of the residents, make it a cleaner, safer place, and and, and they pay you in higher rents for that lift the community that it's in and drive that return up. That means we're not hoping, right? That we buy it, beautiful, nice asset, and hope the prices go up over time. We're forcing that appreciation by going to work and adding value. So we're doing a combination of just finding really good investments. We can get at a discount because the operators just have to get out. Finding ones where we can do a little elbow greasing it and you know some, some basic renovations to get it up or just a lease up if, if, if it's empty and layering it in the right markets with the right foundational debt product. And, uh, and those, that's the recipe for success. Absolutely. No, and all very, uh, valuable and useful information. When looking for investors and, and clients to invest in specific deals, especially in real estate, I know that returns uh, speak volumes. Returns are important. Your previous returns and, and your previous funds that you've had and open carry a lot of weight and attract new investors and, and also bring in uh, returning investors. But when you were just getting started, when you were you know first um, starting out with Invest on Main Street, how did you attract new investors when you maybe didn't have a successful track record at that point? Well, I partnered up. First of all, I didn't go at it uh, when I when I started scaling in a multifamily. I worked with the best of the best that I could find around, and you know, I partnered up. And I didn't show up being like, "Hey, I'm your new partner. Give me a percentage of the ownership of this building." I spent two and a half years actually after I stopped single family, uh, just making relationships, learning the business, and contributing and adding, working hard, adding value to other operators, and and just. Kind of paying to play, getting in the business, and eventually, after bringing a lot of deals and and doing a lot of work and traveling around, uh, one of my one of my colleagues was like, "Hey, let's do a deal together," and that's how I got in. I was able to leverage his track record. Um, also, I come from a machine design, automation, and robotics background. That is actually much more risky. <laughs> those those investments into large, custom one of a kind machinery that's a much more risky highly technical and challenging uh, venture. And so I had been working with entrepreneurs and CXOs and large business owners and small business owners, and they had been entrusting us with millions of dollars to build one-of-a-kind machinery. So I had a network and I had two master's degrees. I had a network of, of uh, individuals that were that I had worked with, built respect with. And when I said, hey, this is what I'm doing, and I have been doing it on my own in single family, but I'm scaling to larger. Quite a few of them were like, yeah, let's do it. I'm in. And I started out accredited investors only. I didn't do friends and family. I started out 100,000 minimums, 100 accredited investors only, and I've always been that way. So I've always gone for that kind of higher net worth individual that is a busy professional looking for somebody like me, an analyst, to go out and do the heavy lifting and find deals and, and bring them to them that they otherwise wouldn't be able to. And that's a lot of value. And it's true, it took a little while to get some exits, <laughs> but the exits have been strong. I mean, I've 
that I don't even, I don't really talk about my exits because it gives people kind of a, I don't, you, you always want to over deliver, but if you tell somebody you've had a really good profitable exit, then even though you're projecting reasonable returns, they're still wanting that big profit. <laughs> so I still tend to tell people that we're very conservative in our projections and we can hit them even in a downturn, but let's not focus on, so let's not focus on how profitable our exits have been. Let's focus on what's achievable moving forward and set the bar at a reasonable level. Absolutely. I mean, you just mentioned, um, you know, you just mentioned some of the peace of mind that, or some of the peace of mind that your services and your expertise can bring to business professionals. So I want to ask, what are the advantages of investing in a multifamily syndication versus the stock market? Well, you know, I, I, if you go to my website, I have a passive investor guide that I think brings, and I even have data tables and everything that brings about 12 different reasons why. Um, but the S&P, once you subtract it out, fees, you subtract it out, um, taxes and inflation, you correct it for inflation. Um, it actually returns about seven, seven and a half percent. And in some calculations, closer to three and a half to four percent over the last 30 years. Um, and that's because you you, you, you got to correct for inflation in there, right? You got to correct. So that's actual usable return. Real estate is very strong. Um, the problem with the, the stock market is it's very volatile. It may not be there the year that you want to retire. It may be down and then you have to wait five plus years for it to rebound. When you want to pull the money out, it's oftentimes taxed. Uh, in real estate, you can invest. Uh, in a property, we immediately start cash flowing. Can't do that without kind of doing a much more proactive, risky path of options, right? And then that all your proceeds are taxed. In real estate, we do depreciation. The government incentivizes investors that put capital into housing and also food and energy. And that's why we do both housing and energy deals because you're investing alongside of where the government needs you to. They reward you by not taxing you. On your cash flow, we had depreciation pass through, and our investors collect that. You know, call it four to ten percent across our portfolio a year, not paying taxes on it. Um, and we oftentimes improve the value of the properties to the point where we've increased the equity so much that we can return our investors' capital through a refinance. You can't, but they still own the building, but they got their capital back. That refinance isn't even a taxable event. Uh, you can't do that. You can't buy, you know, 100 shares in stocks. And then when it goes up, pull your capital out. You know, you, you don't own you don't own it. You don't own it anymore. <laughs> when you pull your capital out, you can't you can't do that. And it's taxable when you sell every time. So we can actually raise the value to pull your capital out in a tax advantage way. What does that mean? It means you got your you invest 100,000, you're cash flowing on it, tax shielded. Couple years later, we've been able to return your hundred thousand to you, tax shielded. Now you can invest that in another property. Now you're compounding returns. And this is at the the Warren Buffett calls it compounding interest, right? Uh, allows you to continue to buy, reinvest on interest, reinvest your proceeds to exponentially grow your wealth. And then there's the ten thirty one exchange. Um, you can't buy one stock and uh, uh, sell it and then buy another stock without paying taxes. 
But in real estate, because again, the IRS wants to incentivize people to invest in real estate, we can sell a property and reinvest it into another property. We can make a million dollars on the sale of a property. We've actually made 15 million before. And we reinvested it immediately into another property using a process called the 1031 exchange. Fairly simple. And we didn't pay a penny in taxes on that. Uh, we bought for, uh, it was a 25 million, sold for 37 million apartment building in Florida. We didn't pay a penny in taxes. We traded it into a um, property in, uh, in, in Houston. Um, so the 1031 allows you to continue to grow your wealth without paying taxes from asset to asset. Can't do that in the stock market either. And when the market goes down in the stock market, your principal goes down. But in real estate, in our deals, when the market falls, well, you still have your equity position. Sometimes the cash flow will go down, but your principal is secured on real assets. It's secured on an actual building. So in the stock market, if the company collapses, that piece of paper you bought vaporizes. Um, in real estate, you still have a building that's insured. You can still recoup, in worst case, you can oftentimes recoup your cash. So there's a lot of advantages. There are, you know, and it's part of a healthy portfolio. A lot of investors that are in IRA and 401ks can self-direct those and participate in the, in the benefits of real asset ownership um, and diversify. I recommend they do. You just mentioned this and you just uh, you just spoke about it and explained it. But I want to ask you again the, so we can take a deeper dive and so I can get clips for um, Instagram and TikTok because this is a really important tool here that you just mentioned and we can use. But let me ask you this again. What is a 1031 exchange and how can investors use that to build wealth? Right. So the 1031 exchange is kind of the IRS saying, hey, look, Mr. Real Estate Investor, thank you for doing that. In fact, we need to incentivize investors to invest in housing and food and energy because the United States requires uh, investors to do that. Um, it's, it's, it's not a country where the government houses and feeds Americans or energizes. Uh, they require investments to do that um, by us, by the private sector. So they said, hey, you know what? Because you're doing that, we're going we're gonna to go ahead and let you sell a property. And instead of paying taxes, um, if you follow some certain rules and you immediately, uh, within a time frame, buy another property, we're going to let you trade the entire profits forward without paying any taxes on it. That means you, if you made a million dollars on the sell, you invest a million dollars. You don't have to pay 30, 40% taxes on the million and then invest 700,000. What does that mean? Maybe you have another 300 grand in that next property that you otherwise wouldn't. That's the government's money, right? Maybe that 300 grand, maybe you're collecting a 10%, you know, cash on cash return on that, right? I mean, that's it's an extra 30 grand a year that you otherwise wouldn't have had. Uh, and then when you do it again at the maybe you hold it for three to five years and you turn that million into another three million in profit. Well, you can do it again, right? And now you're getting a 10% potentially return hypothetically, and now you're cash flowing an extra 300,000 a year that you otherwise would have had to, uh, you wouldn't have gotten because it would pay the taxes on that. 
So the most powerful wealth building tool available to ordinary Americans is the 1031 exchange. And it is available in real estate transactions. Um, it's also available in oil and gas. <laughs> Not very well known that uh, they do also allow that. And there is a play that we work on with oil and gas interests because they are also incentivizing investments in that as well. What kind of return should real estate investors expect? Well, on days like today, if people are giving you crazy flashy returns and they don't have a good reason, I'd question it. Um, if you're looking for uh, just long-term holds, oftentimes those are somewhere between 10 and 18% uh, over a long-term hold. That would include your proceeds from maybe a refinance after you've improved the property and sale. If you're just looking for cash flow, right now they're a little lower. Uh, interest rates going up. I've seen deals cash flowing at 3%, 6 maximum 8% in the first year. And they go up from there um, just on your monthly passive income. Uh, what I think is really cool about what's happening now is we're seeing some of those incredibly uh, opportunistic buys that we saw in 2009 and 10, which I wasn't around, to, I wasn't liquid to be able to buy because I lost everything in the pre-development. Um, so we have a fund right now where we have some flashy returns. We were able to do four properties outside of the fund, you, acquiring them at credible price points where we're able to get our capital out in six months to a year and then buy another property. So we're looking at a 30% uh, average annual return on that um, opportunistic acquisition fund because we're sifting through thousands of leads and finding some incredible deals. So there are some ways, especially now, potentially get some higher returns if you take a little more risk profile and you look more at the longer term gain um, of buying some dis distressed assets that are owned by distressed operators that need out quickly. That's, that's what we're looking at right now. At this point in your career, how do you define success as a founder and as an entrepreneur? Well, so when I was slaving away doing engineering and I was moonlighting real estate, I was, it was working, but I wouldn't say I was successful. I was very good at doing the engineering. I was making a lot of income. And I was doing great at the real estate, but I don't know if I was that successful. I was exhausted all the time. I was stressed out. That's not success. I didn't get married until I was 35 <laughs> because that was impossible. I was constantly traveling. I was constantly busy. Um, and uh, what I felt like success really looked like was when I scaled and partnered up into larger commercial investments. I diversified into energy. And I was able to walk away from the engineering slot. I was able to get my time back. Um, my wife and I were able to move to Hawaii during COVID. We were able to have freedom of where we live. We were able to generate passive income and returns that show up while we sleep. And we just were able to have a boy. And now I'm able to be there <laughs> for him. Unlike when I was slagging away, traveling constantly when we first got married. Um, so that's what success looks like to me. What's the most important reason for your success? Uh, 
I would just in general, I, not to be cliche, but I, I do a lot of, uh, I run every morning, do a lot of exercise. And while I'm doing that, I, I focus on education. I listen to TED Talks. I'm actually doing a TED Talk later this year for the first time. And it's been kind of a long journey for me because I never thought I would ever do something like that. But it's been dozens of years now I've been listening to TED Talks That's fire. Uh, on these morning runs. What? That's fire. Yeah. And I listen to audiobooks. Um, business books, self-help books, personal journey, spiritual books on those runs. And I take action on them. You know, I, I oftentimes will come back just energized and ready to go and I'll set a meeting up and I'll be like, let's try this new thing. Like, what do you think about this? Or I'm sending off some random clips, you know, into my director of marketing or operations or something. Um, but that constant uh, journey to self-help, self-improvement, and the desire to want to implement um, what I've learned, I think, has been constantly there with me. And I come from a family of academics. My, my father's got three PhDs. My sister's a PhD uh, professor as well. So I'm not the smartest or the most learned uh, in my family, but I definitely have that, that hunger for, for learning and personal growth. Nah, that's incredible. Con you know, congrats on, you know, the birth of your son, getting married, and congrats on that TED Talk. Like, four years ago, I, I would listen to TED Talks, like, every day and just make sure I was locked in um, and learning as much as possible. I'm going to make sure I, I'm going I'm to make sure I send you some merch for that TED Talk day, though, you know. But uh, what does the future of Invest on Main Street look like to you? Well, we're building out different alternative investments that are a departure from the traditional stock roller coaster. Um, we have multiple channels that we're building out that allow for true diversification. They allow for cash flow, inflation hedging, tax advantages in different market cycles like real estate and energy and a couple others. Stay tuned um, so that you can begin to compound your wealth, but in different verticals, in ways where if there's a market cycle, your whole portfolio is not going to be down all at one time. And uh, you can see a more healthy, longer-term focused uh, balance in your portfolio. And my goal with this podcast and the book and the, the talks and I write for Forbes is try and get the message out that these alternative investments exist. And they don't have to follow the path of working until they die. I was once one of those following that path. They don't have to follow the path of slaving away, trying to do it all their own on their own with single family. Um, they can passively invest in these assets and they can have similar returns, but they can have their life back and go enjoy their family, friends and hobbies. And I think that's what really energizes me and what gets me out speaking on stages and talking about this stuff. Absolutely. I mean, and at the at the beginning of uh, the podcast, the recording, you know, you mentioned that you had a book out, um, you know, you're an author, Amazon bestseller, and it's called Persist Persistence, Pivots and Game Changers, Turning Challenges into Opportunities. And uh, we we're talking about doing some sort of link for the people so they can access, uh, you know, this book for free. Yeah, I'd be happy to. So I, it tells my whole story. I wrote a chapter in here 
um, persistence, pivots, and game changers. This is it here, turning challenges and opportunities. I'm there. I've, I have hair in this one <laughs> before my wife shaved it all off. Um, but a couple other guys on here, Phil Collins, lead guitarist at Def Leppard, NFL, NBA players, coaches, uh, entrepreneurs. This is a really, Brian Tracy did the forward, really cool book. I did a chapter. I tell my whole story. It was me finally getting it all out there. Happy to share it with your listeners. And I just bought a boatload of copies. I signed them. I sent them out. But that guilts you into reading it because I think it'll make a difference for you if you do. There's, It's hard to not get inspired with this many cool people in a book, right? Uh, invest on MainStreet.com slash book. That's the secret link. You got to type it all out, invest on, and then main, and then street.com slash book and put your information in there. I would love to chat with you if you would like to. It's definitely not required, but I'm happy to put you on the whatever path makes the most sense for you and talk about your goals. And you can set that up at investonmainstreet.com slash contact or just click the button. But we ship a hard sign copy of this out to you as long as you're, I did ship some overseas, but not many. So <laughs> well, if you're overseas, maybe we'll see. Um, but I'll, maybe I'll send you the e, the ebook if, if you're too far away, but happy to share that with all your listeners. Absolutely, man. Patrick, thank you so much. Thank you for spending time with us today. Um, you know, and I just look forward to seeing what the future has in store for you. So thank you for sharing this information with us. Absolutely. Wesley, thanks for having me.